and you look as excited to be alive as I am today. I know. Are you okay? <laughs> Shark, give me a countdown. But who among us truly understands it? Who among us can truly say that we are living history if we are all living through history? In this series, we take a look at history through the lens of the future present, the present past, <laughs> and the present present. This is, uh, hold on, this is The Right Can't Read, a podcast about the right's never-ending co-optation of culture? Well then, while I obliterate this script that rambles about quantum mechanics as misunderstood by someone on acid, Please, <laughs> introduce yourselves. Uh, my name is Rachel. Pronouns are she, her. What up, Robert Sharkey. Uh, I have a loose understanding of quantum physics and in-depth experience with acid. Those are the qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am Aaron Simon. My qualifications are, uh, I wrote this script, so that means I am the, uh, the master. Much like the captain and, of a ship, you can perform marriages while the episode is recording. Yeah, I can. So, uh, listeners, you know, write in um, <laughs> and, you know, call in. The The number is 555-Klondike-59372. So, you know, go ahead, call in. We'll, uh, we'll marry you. I don't care what religion, you know, if you need uh, a, a Quetzalcoatl, I can do Quetzalcoatl. <laughs> if you need Mithras, I can do Mithras. Whatever, it doesn't matter. If you need the worm god from in the layer of the of the white worm, that's great. We'll do that. Non-denominational podcast rabbi Aaron Simon. Exactly. <laughs> A modest fee of $99.99. So, Shark, Rachel, to kick us off, I'd like to ask you one simple question. Have you ever watched TV? TV. Yes. Yes, I love it, unfortunately. Okay. What am I in my thirties? I stream stuff, Aaron. He's <laughs> <laughs> old news now. Yeah, that, that, get that with the an, kids. That is an excellent segue because <laughs> I'm going to be talking about uh, being a teenager in the late nineties <laughs> and early two thousands. Uh, you see, I at that point, you know, my my a lot of my uh, my free time uh, because I was not, uh, you know, in a town that had a movie theater or anything like that. Uh, I didn't a have a movie theater. We didn't have a movie. We had to drive okay. about 20 minutes to go to a movie. Um, yeah. I thought Sorry, it was longer. Continue. No, it's fine. I was just thinking about a Google map search I did, how that really isn't indicative of what the traffic would have been like when I was driving. Anyway, uh, so, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, in, like, internet chat rooms and all of that fun stuff. But I also had a lot of exposure to TV. And in that uh, that era of media consumption, this is before ancient aliens paved the way for the more destructive conspiracy theories of the world. You could safely stick to one channel for hours. It, it, it's it's almost like binge watching if you can if you can place your, to put it in the parlance of our times. I could imagine that. Yeah, if you can yeah. imagine binge watching. <laughs> uh, you could experience something, you know, by just sticking to one channel. 
for hours and hours uh, that it doesn't exist anymore. And this thing was a network's crippling inability to run 24 hours a day. Now, during this time, Comedy Central was a network that relied on South Park and Craig Kilborn's Daily Show, and then Jon Stewart's Daily But there was another leg to Comedy Central, and this was odd feature films that are largely forgotten today. One of those sticks out in my mind, Canadian Bacon. Have you ever heard of Canadian Bacon? It sounds familiar. Okay. Who directed that movie? Or I have no idea. <laughs> oh, finally, a movie that Aaron doesn't know. The hey, we got him. <laughs> um, so it it was uh, it was a movie with John Candy in it, and it featured basically an all star cast. You got Alan Alda. You got Rhea Perlman. You got Kevin Pollock. You got Rip Torn. You got Stephen Wright. You got Wallace Shawn. And you got Jim Belushi, who you know may, you may know him as a, a guest star in the redacted protests, just occasionally showing up, offering to get people very high, inviting them to wineries, all that fun stuff. The premise of this movie was pretty simple. Alan Alda plays a an American president who is very uninspiring, if you can imagine such a thing. No. <laughs> to help his poll numbers, his main advisor, a character played by Kevin Pollack, decides to gen up a controversy against Canada to force America to go into a Cold War. This is the uh, lesser-known season nine of The West Wing. Yeah. Where <laughs> Alan Alda becomes president. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is more thrilling than anything Aaron Sorkin can imagine. <laughs> Which is the lowest possible bar to clear. It is. It is. Aaron Sorkin can imagine white people talking in a hallway. <laughs> <laughs> he and George Lucas, they got that in common. Yep. But we're not here to talk about Canadian bacon. We are here to talk about a scene in Canadian bacon. As John Candy's band of schmucks decides to take over Canada, they cross the border in a shitty truck singing patriotic songs like Born in the USA and Oklahoma. Except they don't know the words to Born in, U Born in the USA. They only know the chorus. <laughs> Much like everyone else. Yeah. They repeat it ad nausea. It becomes unbearable. Realizing that they don't know anything other than the chorus, they slip into Oklahoma. <laughs> and I can't tell you anything else about the movie, and frankly, I don't want to look into details. It might be garbage. It might be brilliant. For me, it exists in a uh, kind of a Schrodinger's cat situation of potentiality that I do not want to jeopardize by watching it again. But I watched it enough as a kid that the Born in the USA scene sticks in my head. It's something that sticks in my head in such a way that I'll go about my business on a regular redacted day, seeing couples walking down the street in matching beanies, uh, increasingly bizarre sticker graffiti. And as I gain upon our, gaze upon our organic campaign yard signs, advocating city councilors who want to allow vigilantes to murder homeless people. <laughs> this scene pops into my head, and I give a mirthless chuckle, much like Shark's mirthless chuckle. Yep. <laughs> my friends, today we are here to talk about why Born in the USA is the perfect song to use in a scene in a B-rate comedy about how Americans can be whipped into a frenzy, even though it is a profoundly fucked thing to do to both the artist and the song. I have been in a mental health fugue state all, fugue state all week, and I genuinely forgot what this episode was about. 
<laughs> just been enthralled waiting for the punchline. <laughs> oh. Can appreciate a good fugue state. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Bruce Springsteen is one of New Jersey's most treasured exports, right alongside John Bon Jovi, reality TV shows, and cryptids. Bruce Springsteen is second in that list of four. Cryptids being the top? Yes. Excellent. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Rachel, so obviously. Rachel, yeah. Rachel, do you concur? Yes. All right. <laughs> Thank you. We all long to just be a weird mythological creature that scares tourists in a forest. That's my only goal. In life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Disco Elysium is the best game. Really is. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So, depending on who you ask, Springsteen's career is all about what it is to be an American or what it is to be in the working class or what it is to be from New Jersey, not be John Bon Jovi. If you're someone who has never really followed Springsteen's career, it may also represent the occasional cameo in TV ads or movies. His recording career started in the late 60s and continues to this day. Without a doubt, he is one of the major stars of Americana-flavored rock and roll, and if you don't know him for much, you probably know him for that one song, Born in the USA. Before we get into that song, we should probably talk about who the boss is, why he f- matters beyond being a reference point for pop culture, ranging from high fidelity to an appearance on Mark Maron's podcast, that, by virtue of having two human incarnations of New, uh, of New Jersey in such close proximity, threatened to implode the universe. <laughs> So before we go further, I want to ask you to what is your relationship with Bruce Springsteen? Do you go over to his house for dinner? Does he go over to your house? Do you go camping in the woods? What do you what how well do you know Bruce? Question mark. He is a friend that my parents like make my parents go to his house. So I don't have any <laughs> I don't know much about him. He's just this figure that I hear of all the time. So your parents go to his house? Oh, no, like oh. Uh, metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically, yeah. You kept in re- okay, okay, in all, so you should have kept going with that, Rachel. I'm, no. I'm in a mindset, much like Sharks Fugue State. I'm in my own kind of fugue state. <laughs> you could have just thrown out corrections to me this entire episode. I would have believed them. <laughs> that was the episode, Rachel. Just like Bruce would never say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all I got. Okay. <laughs> Just trolling the exhausted man reading from a Google Docs. <laughs> Excellent. Thank I you. I fucking love Bruce Springsteen. In this analogy, I am one of Rachel's parents that goes to his house. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, my dad's like a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I like his stuff about how working class people should hate the state. My mm-hmm. dad likes his appearance on podcasts where he talks about how much he likes Obama. It's not a lot of Bruce <laughs> overlap, but yeah, we're gonna yeah. talk about that podcast a little bit. Uh, I've listened to a little bit of it, so I'm not a uh, not a Bruce head as they like to call themselves. But uh, you know, I, I dig, I dig Springsteen. Yeah, I grew up listening to it a lot because my parents love him. They've been to several of his shows, travel, you know, to go see his shows. So I'm very yeah. familiar with his music. Um, but like you said, I don't know all of the words to Born in the USA, just the chorus, so. Oh, my yeah. friend, you're in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh-oh, she froze. Pause. 
for this to go into a third audio track. <laughs> oh, there we go. We're back. Oh, okay. All right. Resume. <clears throat> Resume now. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen was born in New Jersey in 1949 to an Irish-Italian family. This is important because, as noted in Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, Springsteen is not Jewish, even though your parents might think he is. Or if you're me, you might have thought he was until you started actually reading anything about him. Why did you think Bruce Springsteen was Jewish? I have no idea. I'm just, it's one of these things that I just heard somewhere at some point and then just that got Your brain is like, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah. If anyone in the world seems goyish to me, it's Bruce Springsteen. Now, there's a lot more people who are goyish than him. I would put like Mark Maron as more goyish than Bruce Springsteen. Ben Shapiro, despite being Jewish. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it, it it I think it was just one of those things that I heard and it just popped in got entered into my brain as a as a fact. But he's not Jewish. Um his parents, they worked blue-collar jobs, and uh that connection to the working class influenced Springsteen's music and lyrics throughout his career. From an early age, he was drawn to music. Teachers called him a loner who just wanted to play around with guitars. Seeing the Beatles on Sullivan inspired him, like so many other kids his age, to pick up a guitar from a local pawn shop and start a band called The Rogues that played at the local Elks Club. From there, he played in power trios and ensemble groups before forming the Bruce Springsteen Band and ultimately the E Street Band. Uh, And now we're going to talk about that podcast. Uh, So there's a podcast series called Renegades, Born in the USA. And it's uh, co-hosted with Barack Obama. And this is important because uh, you may hear people who take the stance that Obama was not born in the USA, but you can point them to this podcast and say, well, if he wasn't, then why is he in a podcast called this? Facts and logic. Facts and logic. So in that podcast series, Springsteen uh, describes his hometown in New Jersey as a working class place that was caught up in the social upheavals of the late 1960s with the Asbury Park riots near his Freehold, New Jersey hometown. Uh, For those of us who were not aware of this, uh, these riots started as a lot of riots did in 1968. The black community in Asbury Park, which made up a sizable proportion of the city, was tired of being downtrodden, not having opportunities, and not having a voice in the city. This exhaustion turned into into the rage that fired up in 68, with the rage spilling out into riots. The voice of the unheard, as uh, defined by everyone's civil rights icon. And just remember, you too can do riots. You too can. It's right there. It's, it's inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember a lot of people saying that if Roe went down, they would riot. Um, don't, oh. I, don't, I don't think that happened, though. But, you know, just as a reminder, you can. It's almost like we knew every one of them was full of shit. Yeah, it's almost. Almost like that. Uh, so in that podcast series with Obama, they don't talk about riots that much, but he does talk, he does say that the Asbury riots were justified, and he approaches an understanding of those riots as a sort of a reckoning with America's past. Uh, around that time, um, Springsteen was called for the Vietnam War draft, but he escaped service due to a prior motorcycle accident. Well, that, and he actively tried to not be drafted. Quoting from a Rolling Stone interview uh, dating from the Born in the USA tour. Uh, Springsteen says, I did the basic 60s rag, you know, filling out all the forms, just crazy, not taking the tests. When I was 19, I wasn't ready to be that generous with my life. I was called for induction, 
when I got on the bus to go take my physical, I thought one thing, I ain't going. In his words about Vietnam, we see mentality that stuck on through his career up through the present day. One about care for the individual and being aware of what it meant to be his own person, albeit a person in the shadow of his dad, class issues, and the broader society in Freehold. He continues, I remember being on that bus, me and a couple of guys in my band, and the rest of the bus was probably 60-70% black guys from Asbury Park. And I remember thinking, like, what makes my life or my friends' lives more expendable than that of someone who's going to school? It didn't seem right. And it was funny, because my father, he was in World War II, and he was the type that was always saying, wait till the army gets a hold of you. Man, they're going to take that hair off of you. I can't wait. They're going to make a man at it. <laughs> we were really going at each other in those days. And I remember I was gone for three days, and when I came back, I went into the kitchen, and my folks were there, and they said, where you been? And I said, well, I had to go take my physical. And they said, what happened? And I said, well, they didn't take me. My father sat there and he didn't look at me. And he just looked straight ahead and he said, that's good. And was, I'll, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. After 1969, his family split up. His parents and the rest of his family, aside from his sister and her children, moved to California. He remained in New Jersey and embarked on his career. <clears throat> um, yeah, no, I, I like that little bit about his uh, his dad's shift from you know machismo and war gotta make a man out of you to just showing a little bit of humanity and uh i think that that happened with a lot of folks in military families with vietnam killing nazis good killing villagers bad yeah Unless yeah. they're Nazi villagers, in which case it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> or a fair amount of Nazi villagers killed, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so to try and give a recount of his uh, musical career would take more time than we have here, and frankly, would not be uh, you know in scope for this podcast. Despite my many attempts to turn this into a music podcast, <laughs> one day I will succeed. But suffice it to say that Springsteen's career shot off like a rocket. This can be credited to his voice, his talent on the guitar, his stage presence, and not leastly his back his backing band, the E Street Band, consisting of luminaries like Steve Van Zant on guitar, Max Weinberg on drums, Clarence Clemens on sax. The E Street Band lent Springsteen's work a full sound that straddled genre lines between rock, jazz, blues, and others. Yeah, objectively one of the best like collections of rock musicians to like top ever. three Springsteen songs. Go, Shark. You first. Um, I go number one, Jungle Land. I go number two, uh, Rosalita, come out tonight. Uh, That's a good one. And number three, not super well-known, Blinded by the Light, originally a Springsteen song from his first album, Fourth of July, Ashbury Park. Really? Yeah. 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 All right, Rachel. Ashbury Park, great album. Good to know. I would say, let's see. Born to Run, classic. Of course. Dancing in the Dark, classic. Of course. Um, I guess Thunder Road is pretty good, too. Mm -hmm. Those are, like, some good ones that are not... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is his his lyrics. Um, You know, most of my favorite Springsteen songs were, you know, written by him, but performed by other artists. Uh, Like Rain and Blood. Which was uh, performed <laughs> by Slayer, uh, Blood and Iron, which was performed by Mastodon, and uh, also by Mastodon, uh, you know, recorded by Mastodon, uh, the Czar. Uh, but yeah, you know, just a prolific, brilliant writer of mo- multiple genres. 
Wait, question. Yeah. Has he had the same band members throughout the existence of the E Street Band? No. Van Zant was pretty consistent. Yeah. And Clemens was until his untimely demise. Yeah. Okay, so he like created this band with <clears throat> these guys originally. It wasn't like he created this band with like a random group and then he eventually like the people I, joined to create this like really great band. So I mean, I, not that they wouldn't I, have been great before, but like I think it kind of evolved was my understanding. Like he had like the rogues and he cobbled together a bunch of other people he knew from forming those bands. And got then it, got it, got it just it. kind of got large enough where it became the E Street band is is my understanding. Sure, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that one. I would assume that they came together later, like you said, because I can't imagine that like four people that talented were all yeah. living like near each other in suburban New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, I forgot yeah. about the rogues part. That makes sense. Yep. I can't imagine yeah, anyone talented living it. in suburban New Jersey, actually. <laughs> Never Springsteen been. was. Yeah, Springsteen was. Um, that's it, though. <laughs> one of one. Yeah, <laughs> one of one. Yeah. So anyone else good from New Jersey? The Jersey Devil. <laughs> Back to cryptids. <laughs> yeah. It's an anti-New so, Jersey pod. <laughs> we're anti a lot of things on this podcast. <laughs> Pro-fugue states, though. We're a big fan of fugue states. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this band was notable for reasons other than its massive talent. Uh, with Clemens on saxophone, the E Street Band was integrated from the very start of the band, something that was rare at the time and, frankly, is still pretty rare in rock ranging from pop to metal. You don't see a lot of integration in bands, which is a bummer. Um, the E Street Band was further notable for times when Springsteen and Clemens kissed on stage. We'll get into that in a little while, uh, with Springsteen's record of support for LGBTQ plus rights, but keep that in mind, because it is important with uh, kind of him as a person who stands up for things. Okay, so at this time, like you just said, he is a supporter. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shocking. <laughs> no. He in fact has an entire song called My Lover Man, which yeah. people debatably yeah. say is him writing about a man, and some say Bruce Springsteen couldn't possibly have had homosexual feelings. That would be unthinkable. Look at him. He's a man's man. <laughs> yeah. The manliest man that ever manned. Mm-hmm. Right up there with um I can't think of a good joke right now. So uh, the, the matter of race it, it is really... Put that it. on my tombstone. Yeah, I can't think of a good <laughs> joke right now. I'm not going to try. <laughs> Works for last words. Yeah. <laughs> great epitaphs. Yeah. Well, when Wedding the government speakers. eventually lines me up against that wall. Yep. <laughs> Uh, the matter of race in the band was something that Springsteen was always aware of. Uh, in the Renegades podcast, he talks about the occasional discussions he had with Clemens about his role in the band as the only black man, and how that was hard for Clemens to handle. At one point, Springsteen talks about when the band played the Ivory Coast. Uh, they took the stage, and uh, Springsteen said, We looked out uh, on a crowd of entirely black faces, and Clarence walked over and he said, Now you know how it feels. <laughs> Springsteen, though, uh, like through most of his life, he had his heart in the right place, and he made it clear that the band stood on the right side of his. As his career continued, he hopped genres ranging from al- albums that harken back to Nebraska uh, in The Ghost of Tom Joad uh, to outright folk influence, as in We Shall Overcome the Seegers, according to a lot of Bob Seeger. 
Uh, he's done, which I think Aaron. would be probably better by virtue of not having Pete Seeger. I don't <laughs> like Pete Seeger. I think he's. You don't like Pete Seeger? I don't like. No, it's just the his singing style. He's the Is inoffensive he uncle of folk music. Yeah, I don't like inoffensive uncle of folk music. I, I like. There's no edge. He's not. Wait, a what's the relation to Bob? Huh? What's the relation to Bob? Aaron uh, just accidentally said Bob Seeger, but it's Pete Seeger. So oh fuck! Yeah, Pete Seeger. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, hey, listeners, I got a pro tip for you. If uh, if you're going to record a podcast, uh, don't drink a beer right beforehand. It really kind of screws with your brain. You offset the beer by drinking an entire cup of coffee in the first well, 10 seconds of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> perfect. No notes. <laughs> Fuck, yeah. Pete Seeger. Uh, ugh. <laughs> um, anyway, not my not my style. I know a lot of people like him. I, I do like, like to imagine that Bruce Springsteen recorded a whole a whole album of Bob Seger songs. <laughs> <laughs> what what's the 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 song Metallica covered? I have no idea. Oh god, it's the Trucker song. Yeah, it's a <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> Springsteen has done everything. From commercial work to say, oh, look, and I even wrote it. The next set, Pete Seeger. <laughs> He's done everything from commercial work to take the stage at Obama's inauguration alongside Pete Seeger, <laughs> where, where the two played a version of Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. It is a phenomenal video to watch, though, because Bruce yeah. Springsteen's constantly trying to like figure out how many of the verses they're going to sing, and Pete Seeger yeah. wants to do every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um... This Land is Your Land is a great song. Uh, there is a verse that was probably not taught to you when you were in elementary school uh, about like <laughs> how private property is an oppression on uh, the working class and how a lot of people who desperately needed it were shut out of government aid yep. during the Depression. It's a great song. Woody Guthrie was a good fucking dude. Uh, yep. So it's that more. pointed out very well that private property signs only ever written on one side. Just yeah. jump over. There's no more sign. Yeah. It's in this land is your land. Yeah, it is. I wish I had. I, I could have left that that paragraph in when I edited this. Oh well. Yeah, anyway, it's a good a good song. Listen to the full song. You can probably find a recording on YouTube somewhere. But uh, do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. This is me bullying you into listening to that song. <laughs> Uh, so it's that more folky through line that we're going to talk about with Springsteen. So he's always seen himself as a pop, uh, populist. In a uh, 1984 interview with Springsteen during the Born in the USA tour, uh, he says the fall. Or this this interview says this uh, in Tacoma before counting off the haunting my hometown. He delivered an extended plug for a community action group called Washington Fair Share, which recently helped force the cleanup of an illegal landfill and is working to overturn Governor John Spellman's veto of a right-to-know law that would require local industries to inform employees of all toxic chemicals they're being exposed to on the job. They think that people should come before profit, and the community before a corporation, Bruce announced. And then he added, this is your hometown. Uh, it's this streak advocating for members of communities to watch out for their communities, to act in a way that benefits everyone, that makes Springsteen a political artist. It is also the streak that puts him, and born in the USA in particular, in the position of being claimed by people across the political spectrum 
despite his obvious po uh, political leanings evidenced by uh, criticism of the Vietnam War, support of LGBTQ plus rights, announcing Obama's presidential camp or supporting uh, Obama's presidential campaigns, support of international women's marches, and public criticism of the Trump administration. So with all that in mind, let's talk about Born in the USA and, and go into it a little bit more than, uh, you know, the chorus. <clears throat> so, uh, in many ways, it's a victim of its own catchiness. It sticks in everyone's consciousness in a way that never quite lets go, and it's conjured up by the slightest of connections. In a 2005 interview with NPR, Springsteen said, My music has been a football where I had people from the far left to the far right who misrepresent us. It's something I live with, and I have always had the opportunity to go on stage and say my piece about it. God, he's such a fucking liberal. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he is. Uh, at least he's not one of the, uh, the, the, the music artists who goes, we are, we are apolitical. Yeah. Kid. He's like a union liberal, which yeah. of the liberals is the best kind of liberal. Yeah. <laughs> you can do, great. you, you can do a lot worse than Springsteen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking a very hot take there in, uh, in saying that I am. You could be worse than Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, so if you listen to the lyrics, uh, the story of the song's narrator is pretty simple. Uh, he's someone of uncertain means who joined the army during Vietnam. He lost friends, his innocence. Then he returned to the United States and found himself right back to where he was, unable to find a job, alienated from society, and not sure of his future. Let's look at the lyrics. Uh, so first, you know, the first stanza is born in a dead man's town. The first kick I took was when I hit the ground. You end up like a dog that's been beat too much till you spend half your life just to cover up. Then leads into a broader critique of society. Brought into the military industrial complex after trouble in his home, saying, got into a little hometown jam, so they put a rifle in my hand. Sent me off to a foreign land to go and kill the yellow man. Then, after returning, he is faced with the recognition that his service did nothing to improve the material conditions of those at home. Come, bo Come back home to the refinery. Hiring man says, son, if it was up to me. I go down to the v see the VA man. He said, son, don't you understand? Had a brother at Quezon fighting off the Viet Cong. They're still there. He's all gone. He had a little girl in Saigon. I got a picture of him in her arms. Viet so take Cong one, U.S. Army zero, scoreboard. That is, that's, that's, and if, like, the original video of the song was just going to have a giant scoreboard at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Viet Cong one. Yeah. I've always desperately wanted, have you seen those horrible shirts that say, like, back-to-back -back World War II champs? Yeah. I've always wanted one that said, like, back-to-back anti-imperialism champs, and it's got the three <laughs> anti-imperial wars that the Viet Cong won back-to-back-to-back. Those dudes that, that would around. be good. I, I was just thinking about it, like, wonder if you could find that somewhere in Ho Chi Minh City. <laughs> <laughs> beat France, beat somewhere. Go ahead, Rachel. I I bet they exist somewhere. Probably. Yeah. I like shirts that make old white people mad, and I feel like that one would. <laughs> that would absolutely make the old white people. 
just a picture of an Apache helicopter exploding <laughs> over a river delta right underneath. Yeah, Gen Z wouldn't understand, and it would make old white people mad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very small segment of the population you're targeting. I like, there, I like a sure. targeted t-shirt strike, like a Raytheon <laughs> missile, not, not a carpet bombing. Excellent. So in the song, uh, corporate structure, society can't do anything to a system, can't get a job, nothing around is doing anything for him. VA is not helping him out either. Uh, So then the narrator, as a result of this, kind of looks back and he starts getting bittered by what he went through. Uh, The song's final verse hits the crux of the song uh, with nothing left to do, no job, no safety net. He is positioned physically and metaphorically between an industrial hellscape and a prison. Uh, in this in this from this song down in the shadow of the penitentiary out by the gas fires of the refinery i'm 10 years burning down the road i've got nowhere to run and nowhere to go wow that's a lot sadder than i (laughs) yeah it's it's a bit different from uh the usual positioning of the song is born in the usa yeah (laughs) slightly different (laughs) i do like to wonder when he came in with the lyrics and was like, okay, so here's the song I'm going to record. And Van Zant and everyone must have been like, is it minor key? Kind of slow? And he's like, <laughs> fuck no! <laughs> but he mumbles it enough so that way if you're not really paying close attention, you can't really understand. So you're just like jamming with it. You're like, yeah, this is good. You know? Yeah, exactly. and I think like he's, my kind of read of that is like he's trying to, it's like he's acting it out from the guy's perspective, right? So it's like he's he's singing like he's kind of an embittered dude. And the chorus is this um kind of the, just someone who's like trying to rage against that and like just get the spite to fuel fuel him through. So it's like this uh it's 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 sung in this way of trying to rally him up into doing something. So it 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 becomes this thing where you listen to it and you're like, yeah, this is rallying. We are America, but because the song, it, yeah, as you said, Rachel, he's like kind of mumbling it because it is just bleak and hard. Uh, it's yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Um. So you know, all of this, it's kind of the topic of of a lot of like movies and and books from the era. Veterans returning to a society that doesn't really care about what they who they are what they did or what their futures are um and you know this is the thing that we run into uh, america's adoration of our troops uh it's it's led to a little bit of a softening of the blow for returning for people returning to combat now but for vietnam uh you know people had it rough when they came back yeah uh, and uh still have it rough now tough and situation it's complicated issues because like you definitely should be mean to people who fly across the world to kill children. And but it's know, also complicated, I guess. It is. And you know, I, I think for those of us who grew up in these kind of small towns, uh, it's a pretty familiar scenario. Like where I was at in Tennessee and in, in Smyrna, you know, as I think I've mentioned before, had a thriving JROTC pro- uh, program that relied on a steady stream of kids from families that had no futures and the kids had no futures and as a country we just shuffle people into this pipeline where you are sent to go around the world and kill people and uh the only way we operate as a global empire is by doing that and you have to prop it up with propaganda 
It's complicated. It's a messy situation. Viet Cong won, America zero. <laughs> well, ultimately. Scoreboard does not lie. Scoreboard does not lie. <laughs> so, like, broadly speaking, we got to consider how many people kind of do return from these situations irrevocably changed. Uh, I've known multiple Marines and Army vets who have consistently stated that they did not feel right in civilian society. Uh, they felt at home in the military, and that makes sense. Military gives people a purpose. It tells them that what they are doing is right. It tells them that they are contributing to a society in a way that others are either not capable of or do not care enough to do so. Uh, some of these people kind of just simply carried on. They never quite fit in. Others left the country again because, uh, well, they took jobs as security contractors in places such as uh, the Middle East or the Gulf of Aden to go kill pirates because they were broken. And uh, there's that book um, by Sebastian Younger called Tribe that talks about this. That is a really good book about how we do not have a society that actually cares about anyone and is set up to make broken people even worse. Don't worry, Aaron, though. It's not going to be a problem when you take a bunch of people, train them to violence, <laughs> make them take a bunch of human lives, and then just let them free range back into society. <laughs> it's never going to be fine. an issue again. Never need to reintegrate people. You don't need yeah. to make sure that you have some kind of support network. Just take them straight from napalming a village to San Bernardino. Yep. And they'll never uh, be a problem. If there is a safety net that has somehow slipped through the cracks, you're going to find out about it. And you need to just go trim that safety net so it, it doesn't support anything. Exactly. Rock falls into it, it collapses. That's what you need to do. This is all part of my anti-federal buildings in Oklahoma stance. <laughs> <laughs> we need as many people as possible to explode federal buildings in Oklahoma. Not actionable. And, and to do Not that, you actionable. have to traumatize veterans. <laughs> None of this is actionable. <laughs> Aaron can't edit it out. I do the editing. <laughs> it can't be stopped. Uh, so, it, you know, perhaps it's not too surprising that this song was inspired by uh, the novel Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, both the novel and the song are a criticism of the way American society, uh, ranging from military to businesses, treat those who go to war. In the broader context of Springsteen, Springsteen's work involving the thoughtful and heavier critiques of Nebraska to the more rock and roll anthems with the E Street Band, Born in the USA, is not particularly hard-hitting. Uh, part of that handling comes, no doubt, from the arena rock chorus, as we've been talking about, that has fooled innumerable, innumerable Americans into seeing the song as an unrestrained celebration of America. It is, though, nonetheless, a song that does a good job of what it is, and it does stand out as a criticism if you look into the lyrics. Part of the success is it is very easily accessible, which makes it a fun protest song to talk about. So I got a question for you, too. What is a protest song? Anybody that gets any song that gets anybody fired the fuck up. Yeah. What? What? Give me one. What? What gets you ready to redacted a federal building and redacted in Oklahoma? <laughs> not uh, actionable i don't know i don't have one off the top of my head okay shark um every day when i was driving to the redacted protests i would drive over one of the many beautiful redacted bridges and um i would look out 
at the city and contemplate if this was the day that I was going to be killed by some 17-year-old fucking weirdo. <laughs> military contractor in tech gear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, military contractor in tech gear I was less afraid of. It was the random, mm. um, it was the pickup murder, the written ah, house yeah, style yeah. Yeah. that I always thought about. And every time as I cross those bridges at around sunset, I listen to, of course, come out ye black and tans, because the yeah. Irish know how to write a good fucking protest song. <laughs> I yeah. mean, maybe it's, maybe they don't. Maybe they used to 800 years to practice. <laughs> and you're just like, you're bound to find broken clocks right twice a day. But yeah. they have some bangers. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, mine is a little more uh, contemporary than Come Out You Black and Tans, but it's a band from Chicago called Tossers. Mm. Uh, they got a song called The Ballad of NATO. That's really good. <laughs> it's less of a song and more just an Irish guy yelling for eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Not like in My a kind metal of song. way. There's just like, it's like one lone string instrument and then this dude just being like i want to kill nato <laughs> <laughs> like eight straight minutes it slaps it's great all right i'll look this one up after yeah. we're done yeah. <laughs> the tossers rock listen to the tossers yeah. this yeah. is a pro top hey. anti new jersey pro tossers <laughs> yeah I, I don't know if they're still around anymore but uh yeah they're good band um so in the renegades podcast springsteen talks about this and he breaks up you know, protest songs into two types. The first is general grievances, uh, which I'm in favor of. I like a good general grievance. I like a good kvetch. The ballad of NATO is just the ballad of NATO. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's something that expresses a broad perspective that can be identified at any time. The second is something that is about a particular topic. Um, the one that popped into my mind as I was working on this is. Uh, the farm aid songs from the 90s, but that's not really a protest. It's just kind of like a political song, and it's like donate money to farmers. Uh, not they were not really catchy, and there's probably a reason you don't know. <laughs> so they're tricky. <laughs> um, they require the listener to know something about the subject, or at least be willing to look something up. Uh, Springsteen prefers the first type, the general grievance. Uh, he lists fight the power, which is a good one. Uh, Anarchy in the UK, which is a good one, despite uh, many of the Sex Pistols' current views on everything. And uh, God Save the Pain, uh, God Save the Queen, also uh, note about Sex Pistols still applies, as three of his favorite protest songs. Uh, arguably, Born in the USA is a song that fits into this first silo. It's something that's accessible. Uh, you know, kind of talked about this as long as we have an empire, we're going to need people to go and die and they're going to be sourced from the working classes. Uh, as long as those classes exist, they're going to be starved of opportunity and pitch the military as an option. And as long as they accept that option, uh, they will inevitably be dehumanized because that is what is required of soldiers. And as they are dehumanized, they will never fully fit into society again. Like our favorite comic book character, the Punisher. <laughs> <laughs> Subsequently, uh, Born in the USA fits into the, the subgenre of Vietnam protest songs. So, you know, there, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the folk music from the 60s and 70s had a lot of protest songs. Did you know that? Wow. Yeah. I thought it was all disco in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was you know, just Bee Gees all the way down. All the way down. 
So there were two kinds of things, you know, that kind of go into this. Uh, there's the intellectual and poetic approach versus the more basic visceral. Uh, the intellectual and poetic being you know, your Bob Dylan's uh, basic and visceral, visceral is kind of described uh, in a really great way um, as uh, by a guy named Utah Phillips. And he was saying this about IWW songs. He said, this music is not great poetry. That's because it had to be simple because people didn't speak a lot of English or hadn't been to school. It's not like your modern protest music, which tends to be introverted, very poetic. Hard to understand, though. Music written for middle-class consumption because they got the bread to buy it. All I'm saying is there's a lot of difference between high, how many miles must a white dove sail before it can rest in the sand and dump the bosses off your back. Jesus fucking Christ. Bob Dylan's the most overwritten <laughs> motherfucker in the history of the world. <laughs> The fact that he won a Nobel Prize for literature makes me want to yeet myself into the sun. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> the Nobel Committee is... You can, you, I think you could do yourself a favor by just ignoring everything that comes out of that. Yeah. As, as your attorney, I'm going to give you that advice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I kind of put Born in the USA in that line of dump the bosses off your back. Um, in the language of Vietnam protest songs, it's further, more easily squared up alongside a song by a guy named Dave Van Rock. And the song called Luang Prabang. If you haven't heard it, you should listen. And I'm going to sing it for you in a bit, because it's <laughs> fucking good. <laughs> Dave Van Rock is an easy person to say, because he's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, so, here are the, here are the, the verses. When I came back from the Wang Prabang, I didn't have a thing where my balls used to hang. I had a wooden medal and a fine harangue. Now I'm a fucking hero. Now the boys all envy me. I fought for a Christian democracy with nothing but air where my balls used to be. Now I'm a fucking hero. And one and twenty cannons thunder into the bloody wild blue yonder. For a patriotic ballless wonder, now I'm a fucking hero. Born your dead land of the free, if you wanna be a hero, follow me. Born your dead land of the free, if you wanna be a hero, follow me. In the Wang Prabang, there is a spot where the corpses of your brothers rot. And every corpse is a patriot, every corpse is a hero. It's a good wow, excellent job. Song. Thank you. It's a very good fucking song. Everyone should do it. Dave on Rock. Awesome. And the basis for one of the best Coen Brothers movies, Inside Lewin Davis, Fight Me. It's great. <laughs> Every time I hear any Dave on Rock song, I'm like, how the fuck did he get any record label to publish any of his shit? <laughs> Just, you know, I think it was a different fucking time. Like, <laughs> it's, I, what it, it's the same thing with movies. As things just consolidate and become more and more hyper-corporate, there's just, no one's taking chance. Nope. Despite there being a lot more money to be made, no more chance. So, obviously, uh, the difference between Springsteen and Van Rock, numerous. Uh, it is amazing that there, were anyone, there was anyone willing to take a chance on Van Rock's songs, but he was a key fixture of the counterculture in a way that Springsteen never really was but take a look uh at people like him to understand born in the usa in the broader context of vietnam protest songs 
what it means to be pop music versus outright political music and how Springsteen slotted into the American culture more broadly. Uh, Born in the USA is a fascinating example of how American culture subsumes pop culture that leans political. From its earliest days, the song was uh, claimed by conservative politicians. As Vice writes in an article that is burdened with the shockingly obvious title, politicians have always misunderstood Springsteen's Born in the USA. (laughs) Just a horrible title. Like... (laughs) Got well, it. it's like, has any have any of the politicians ever just read the lyrics before they decided to use it? Or <laughs> no, you're gonna time. love the you're, you're gonna love this this part. It's gonna Excellent. be <laughs> <Bring> <laughs> it on. So the article says uh, that didn't stop then President Ronald Reagan, who had called the Vietnam War <laughs> a noble cause, from asking for permission to use the song for his reelection campaign and saying in 1984, America's future rests in the message of hope in the songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. He's not wrong, but they're different than the dreams that he thinks that they are. No, but what about Springsteen's songs trickle-down economics? What about his song, I Hope Everyone Dies of AIDS because they're all sinful hedonists? What, What about... Hey, here's my astrology chart from the person who lives in the White House. Yeah. (laughs) The great Ronald Reagan value of having your wife run the entire government, even though she was unelected, because you don't know where the fuck you are anymore. (laughs) With her astrologer. Don't forget. With With her her astrologer. astrologer, Uh, So the article continues. Oh, sorry. Were you going to. No, no. I was just going to mock his voice. He goes, well. I like how deep inside every queer person is chambered at all times a deep <laughs> hatred of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> like, like, the minute the name gets mentioned, just there it goes. Just, <laughs> Like, no matter the topic, if he's brought up with anything, it's like, fucking hey, like, no. no okay, sorry, continue, Aaron. Uh, so the article continues. Though Springsteen denied the Reagan campaign permission to use his songs, uh, that that moment was the beginning of the right's flirtation with Springsteen's music. I have not got a clue about Springsteen's politics, if any, but flags get waved at his concerts while he sings songs about hard times, wrote conservative bow tie wearer George Will in a 1984 <laughs> column. He is no whiner. And the recitation of closed factories and other problems always seems punctuated by a grand, cheerful affirmation, born in the USA. <laughs> While the... He just can't read. George <laughs> Will can't read. Well, it's like, I'm assuming that he's also giving interviews during this time, yeah. right? So it's not he's, anybody he's giving listening like, to his outright political like... speeches at concerts. Like, <laughs> the thing we were talking about in Tacoma earlier, where he's like, Go give money to this group. They're trying to fight the governor because he's trying to screw you. <laughs> it's like oh, the right doesn't want to like listen to him. They're just like, keep your mouth shut. Just, just look pretty. Just, we'll use it. We'll use it. Just don't say anything. <laughs> and like while Reagan's talking about how great he is, every single concert, more or less, Bruce Springsteen is French kissing four <laughs> seconds a giant <laughs> black man, which is Ronald Reagan's. Nightmare. <laughs> and it's like, how the fuck do you like this guy, Ron? Yeah. Uh, because he's not paying attention to that. No. They hear what they see as a uh grand cheerful affirmation. 
<laughs> born in the U.S. The article continues. While the arrangement is certainly upbeat, Will's assertion that the cor- the song's chorus is cheerful is a complete misread of the material, <laughs> as we've discussed. <laughs> I think people got a need to feel good about the country they live in, Springsteen told Rolling Stone in 1980. But what's happening, I think, is that the- that need, which is a good thing, is getting manipulated, exploited. And you see the Reagan re-election ads on TV, you know, it's morning in America. And you say, well, it's not morning in Pittsburgh. And that line, it's not morning in Pittsburgh, says it all. When the album was released in 1984, when America was pulling out of a massive recession, when the Rust Belt was really hurting, when industry, which had been long since in the backbone of the American economy, was in shambles. That kind of hits me. Uh, See, my family has some ties to the American industrial heartland. Though I was born in Texas, my earliest memories and most of my happiest childhood memories were from Maslin and Canton, Ohio. Uh, my fa- yeah, I- <laughs> there's a Michiganer on the podcast and <laughs> shaking hands. It's like, it's Reagan and Ohio, the two things Rachel hates. <laughs> Both actually uh, Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> Uh, so you, my family. I, I forget that you've lived in like every terrible place. Yeah, Canton <laughs> yep. <laughs> was all right. I, I I stand by that one. Like that was a. I lived in a nice multicultural area. I had a bunch of Greek friends whose families just fed me a lot of like really good food. I was like, that doesn't sound like the Ohio that I know. So that <laughs> well, sounds yeah, great. It's, <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, it's probably not at all what Canton was like for anyone who was not a kid. But for me, it was great. So. My brother, uh, who was older than me, has, uh, yeah, horrible memories of Canton, so. And Ohio does sound like a place where having a Greek family nearby qualifies as multicultural. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, the Pastrikos is, uh, <laughs> half of the family in that house did not speak English. <laughs> so, multicultural. <laughs> so, uh, my family moved from Houston to the Canton-Akron area when I was baby. Uh, he's worked in the steel industry for a long time, mostly in sales. And uh, steel in the late 80s and 90s, and even more so today, was a precarious industry. One in which companies were falling apart as a result of, you know, just about everything. But primarily a lot of globalization, which moved factories outside of the U.S. So, you know, it's not morning in Pittsburgh. It's a, it's a statement that was, until recently, still true. Hell, Cleveland, which has the closest major city to Canton, Still has a reputation of a, uh, as an industrial hellscape. Do you remember that time the Cuyahoga River caught fire no less than a dozen times? Yes, and we don't let anybody forget it. <laughs> and, you know, Rachel, I, you're from another kind of area of the country that has ties to industrial things. So does your family have any kind of roots in this stuff? Or are you uh, all just No, my family was a lot of engineers. Yeah. Lots of engineers, so the car industry for sure. Not really industrial. It's kind of different, you know, as it gets up into Michigan. So, uh, so you know, all this it's kind of a knife in the ribs of the American working class when people like Reagan attempt to take ownership of anything remotely working class. But the eighties were not the only time when the right wing has attempted to use "Born in the USA." No, despite counting in their ranks artistic luminaries such as Hank Jr. and Kid Rock. The right wing consistently attempts to mine blue-collar ballads for songs they can pilfer for their campaign rallies. Let's take a look. Just a few times the right has chosen Springsteen's most famous song. 1. Bob Dole's 1996 presidential campaign. Kill Bob Dole. This is not actionable. (laughs) 
two Pat Buchanan's 2000 <laughs> presidential campaign. Kill Pat Buchanan. This is not actionable. <laughs> three Donald Trump's campaigns. That probably would be actionable. <laughs> Four. Uh, that that time when Donald Trump's cultists blared the song as Trump was being treated for COVID. What? Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, when he was in the hospital after, uh, which, you know, I mean, if you're talking about non-actionable things, uh, the doctors really missed an opportunity to save the country <laughs> and the world from a lot of grief, but... <laughs> fucking oaths uh so yeah when he was <laughs> when he was oaths, oaths i guess <laughs> yeah so when he was being treated a bunch of just trump supporters lined up across the street from i think walter reed or wherever he was with like boom boxes and shit oh my god <laughs> and just blared that song and a bunch of others just tripe so awful jesus uh, fucking christ yeah. five there's so many parts of the Trump presidency that, like, 20 years from now, if there's still humans, will have to be, like, told as deep lore, because, like, so much- <laughs> like, so I still talk about that time, he was like, what if we nuke a hurricane, and everyone's yeah. like, oh, I forgot about that, and I'm yeah. gonna be, like, talking about that, and it lives in my brain, and everyone has one of those moments of just, like, Trump being a full frittata. <laughs> buying green. Wait, did you say a cold frittata? Full frittata. Full oh, frittata. Okay. It's the Very stages nice. of insanity that I apply to myself, taken from <laughs> various TV shows. It okay. can be a whole egg, and then you get a little scrambled. And if you have the issues I do, you're a full frittata. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure using that. Spectrum. <laughs> uh, yeah, my favorites are the uh, his attempts to buy Greenland. Uh, oh yeah i forgot forgot about those Uh, what a good time and then the the whole i'm gonna really support goya because (laughs) (laughs) photo opportunities with cans of beans there was that time when donald trump pivoted from very pro cans of stuff to very anti cans of stuff pretty much overnight yep (laughs) yep it's I miss logging on to the news and being like, wow, this is never, I've never seen anything like this before. Minimum. Five. Five. We're, this is the last bullet point in this particular list. Uh, finally, and possibly the world's saddest one sided friendship, Chris Christie has repeatedly asked Springsteen to perform at fundraisers and campaign rallies. With the exception of joining in on Christie's uh, hurricane relief efforts after Sandy, Springsteen has never reciprocated Christie's enthusiasm. The mm. former governor, for the record, has seen Springsteen quote over a hundred and forty times Jesus in concert. Wow! <laughs> what does Chris Christie do now? Does he like work at a subway? <laughs> I don't know. I, I Chris Christie. Uh, uh, news pundit person for a hot second after yeah. he's failed at being a politician basically yeah <sighs> shark so, enlighten us i'm looking at his twitter okay oh, uh, all right <laughs> so what what goes beyond full frittata because i think that's what you're gonna be if you keep looking at chris christie's twitter it's just him reposting stuff from fox news <sighs> well you know all that should not be any surprise. Songs that include include USA in the title, just catnip for people on the right wing. Uh, from a Rolling Stone listicle, 
the following are just some of the songs that the right has attempted to appropriate, not only uh, only to be rebuked by the artists. So one Independence Day by Gretchen Wilson, uh, which was chosen by Sarah Palin. (laughs) Two Our Country and R.O.C.K. in the USA by John Mellencamp, chosen by John McCain, George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. Three. Who Says You Can't Go Home by John Bon Jovi, chosen by Sarah Palin. Four, American Girl by Tom Petty, chosen by George W. Bush. Uh, Rockin' in the Free World, number five, by Neil Young, chosen by Donald Trump. And my favorite of this list, uh, Waving Flag by Kanon, the Somali rapper who used to be a pirate. Uh, and you know, this was chosen by Mitt Romney, who it is obvious had no idea who Kanon was when his campaign chose this. There was a spectrum of humanity, and they're the on either end of the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's Kanon and, and Mitt Romney are opposite kinds of people. Yep. <laughs> I just, be- I just am picturing like the broiest bro work- uh, of the person working on Romney's campaign is like, this is the song that we need. Yeah. <laughs> Been hearing this all over campus, Mitt. We got to do this. <laughs> Those are just the ones that I could find from a cursory glance around the internet. Uh, do you have any other ones that you that you can think of off the top of your head? I always think of Fortunate Son, how that's now yeah. just like a Vietnam movie song, but it's actually about how much the Vietnam War sucks. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one that I was thinking of, too. Yeah. So um, if you don't know any of those songs, you probably should. Otherwise, you're going to hear them in Ron DeSantis' inevitable presidential run. <laughs> So Springsteen said about all this in 84, uh, well, the president, referring to Reagan, was mentioned my name in his speech the other day, and I just got kind of got to wondering what his favorite album of mine must have been, you know? I don't think it was Nebraska. <laughs> he continued, the Reagan campaign's use of Born in the USA is when the Republicans first mastered the art of co-opting the art of anything and everything that seemed fundamental, fundamentally American. And if you were on the other side of that thing, you were somehow unpatriotic. So that's where I was. I make American music. That's what I do. I write about the place where I live and who I am. And that belongs to me. Uh, Springsteen, having made a career out of pop music, seems undeterred by the fact that his music will be co-opted. He seems to know full well that there's nothing he can do to stop it. It is, one might say, in the nature of pop music to be taken in many different ways. This is what I think makes it different from music like Dave Von Ronks or Utah Phillips's or uh, on the heavier side of the spectrum, Panopticon's Kentucky, which features samples of coal miners talking about the difficulties of organizing unions in the early early 20th century, uh, sandwiched between some really good black metal. Indeed, as much as I would love to be baffled by, let's just say, Dan Crenshaw walking out to black soot and red sand. I think the chances of that happening are slightly less than hearing him walk out to the equally inappropriate Dropkick Murphy's recording of which side are you wrong? Uh, are you on? Thinking about that, though, I can probably see him using that in a fundamental misunderstanding that it is a pro-union song. Absolutely. So, yeah. <clears throat> what this ties into, <laughs> Rachel, you looked like you're very, you're, you're in deep thought. Well, yeah, I just, <clears throat> I've got stuck on the fact that you've been saying up. Is is it yep. his music categorized as pop? I I I consider it pop because it's like it's radio rock. Springsteen okay. also went through this whole weird thing where when he was first coming out, he was billed as the next Bob Dylan, 
because he was like kind of lyrical and sort of folky. And then um, in the early 80s, I think it was, all the studio execs were like, this guy's kind of hot. I think we could fuck this guy. And then they were like, wait, let's uh, make a pivot. Label and pop. Yeah. <laughs> and so he started doing things like dancing in the dark and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, I think that people will want to have sex with this guy. Let's get some electronic music in here. Got it. Yeah, and like music genres are always just kind of murky, and I like I, I don't know. I've I've been so metal pilled throughout my life that anything that's not like you know thrash, anything to the right of of Megadeth is pop for me. So <laughs> take my classifications with salt. This is not an advocate advocation for listening to Megadeth. Dave Mustaine is a madman. Aaron's three genres of music, <laughs> black metal, <laughs> post-1800s classical, <laughs> and, and pop. pop. <laughs> Nothing else exists. <laughs> so what this ties into more broadly is the question of the line between commercialism and art. As Shark put it, uh, Pop music is when you want to fuck the artist, and so they do stuff like <laughs> like like dancing in the dark. Uh, by virtue of being popular, it it's got to be accessible, right? So like, Springsteen's pretty accessible. Stuff is popular. It's got it's it's rock, but it's still pop. Although Springsteen does live in that is he actually hot genre for me? Like okay. I can't tell. I can't tell. I'm asking well, the wrong group of people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay. He's my question is, what is, what's turning you off about him? Like, what, what what makes you question, like, is he actually... Just, like, some pictures of him. He looks, like... Okay, alright. He just looks, like, kind of, kind of, like, fluorescently lit, like, all the time in some pictures. <laughs> and then other pictures, he looks, he looks really good. Hey, yeah, yeah. It's like him and a young Sean Bean that I always have that question. Not an old Sean. Uh, old Sean, Sean yeah. Bean is hot. Mm-hmm. Sh- wait, when you say young Sean Bean, are you thinking like the Sharps series? Yeah, or are you exactly. thinking GoldenEye? Okay. Like the, fuck, I always forget Sean Bean was in GoldenEye. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Alex so Trevelyan. Good. Yep. <laughs> old Sean Bean can get it, though. Now that I've... Is Springsteen hot? Uh, 006 was in Leon's right? Cossack. Write Aaron on Twitter and tell him your opinions yeah. of his Bruce Springsteen hot. Yeah, yeah. Write not, me at not me. At, at is Springsteen hot at proton.info and <laughs> write in. Leon's Cossack. That, yeah, that's. I think that may have been like the first exposure I had to the word Cossack. First oh. time a Jewish person ever has, in fact. First, yes, <laughs> surprisingly. That, well, yeah, it is kind of weird because my dad's got this story about uh, when he lived in New Orleans. He was walking around his neighborhood with uh, a friend, and this is when he was like a teen. Uh, his friend said, uh, "How come all the Jewish families have their houses like away back from the sidewalk?" And my dad's response was, "Well, that's so the Cossacks can't find us." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I'm gonna skip this this paragraph. It's all me dissecting pop like I'm very intelligent. Go listen to Panopticon, Neckbeard, Dank, Death Camp, or not. I don't know. Pop's good. If you like pop, go for it. Comfort food is good. She Hulk is probably great. I don't know. I don't. She Hulk is great. Wait, wonderful. Are you talking about 
you're not we're not talking about the same things probably no we are it was like yeah the show i don't i don't know i think that was the one pop culture thing aaron has figured out the past two months exists yes (laughs) i read some article about a new show on netflix making people buy ring doorbells because they're all paranoid i don't know she hulk though that one i know about so yeah thumbs up to she hulk Uh, yeah it's it's great Tatiana Manslady, I could just, okay, I do really like the show, but Tatiana Manslady in specific is just excellent. She plays she, uh, She-Hulk? Yeah. What's her shtick? So she's a, a an attorney. I think I think it says it all. She's a She-Hulker. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's always an attorney. Hulk. She's doing really great at law. No, and then she was hanging out with her cousin, the Hulk, and <laughs> gets some okay. of his blood in her bloodstream via <laughs> a car accident. Oh, okay. And then she turns into the Hulk or She Hulk, but she can willingly like she can control when she changes mostly. Okay. Um. So then it's just about like this law firm hires her, but wants her to be She Hulk like while she's working. So it's just like, uh, kind of you know, it's like a branding thing. Her. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. It's a good show. You okay. should watch it if that interests you. Probably not, but you know. <laughs> But yeah, not not here to say that you shouldn't watch it. Do your thing. Aaron's two genres of film: esoteric things directed by Artors and She Hulk. <laughs> That's it. Those are the two. Those are the two genres. But if there's a new popular movie out, I'm like, yeah, go see the She Hulk. Go see the She Hulk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you did try to get me to watch a George Miller movie, which I will not do, except Dave. So. You're really no, a pop I, a pop I guy. Don't understand why you don't want to watch any George Miller movie. You're a pop guy. Why Mad don't Max you want Road was good. It was great. Road Warriors fucking rad. Babe the Pig also Babe good. Babe the Pig, yeah. Did you read the essay I wrote about this? <laughs> did, did, did. Did. It was a good essay. It was a good essay. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best parts of being friends with Aaron is you can sometimes say something stupid and then Aaron will come back <laughs> with like, the full logical extension possible of the joke and it's the best thing ever like he did in fact write a short essay about my wife's statements about fury road and babe the pig in the same essay mm-hmm. yeah, the title is, yeah the 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 title is called uh trotters tuxes and tailpipes <laughs> <laughs> really, really linking everything together about environmental collapse, humanity being inhuman against human, and how Babe is the synthesis between those two, you know, between Mad Max and Happy Feet, and they cross at the point of Babe. Wow. It was an oddly yeah. convincing moving. This is my conclusion. <laughs> so all of this, and this is my thing with a lot of pop stuff, is like, where is the room for artistic inquiry? And when when we're talking about my two genres of film of like esoteric weird film, like that's the artistic inquiry that I'm interested in. You know, like I I want to see the weird Russian the Soviet sci-fi where it's just a close up of a dude's head for several minutes as he's thinking about theology. Like, give me that, inject it right into my veins. And if you're someone like Bruce Springsteen, you have your craft down to a T. You know how to write the songs. You know how to perform the songs. You know how to address the subjects of the songs and how to fill your time outside of music in a way that shows people who are paying attention exactly where your politics lie. Springsteen, he adopts this almost zen-like acceptance of people co-opting his songs, uh, perhaps giving you know artists working within the commercial milieu an ideal to strive for. He writes his music the way he wants it to be written, 
It is put to paper and recorded, and the lyrics are blatantly obvious as to where he stands. Positions are as clear as day, and songs like Streets of Philadelphia, or My Lover Man, as we talked about earlier, or Tougher Than the Rest. Sure, they're not oi polloi's Donald Trump fuck you, but the lyrics make it clear that Springsteen, using his public image, is trying to, in the words of a Slate article, make it appear safe for heterosexual men to align with gay rights. And yet, his songs are victims of their own catchiness in ways that find them regularly co-opted by the very people who should uh, decidedly not like them. So this begs the question, why is it that there does not appear to be a deep tradition of conservative pop art? For every Rush's Tom Sawyer, for every horrific and vapid Kiss album, there are dozens of more liberal or left-wing artists. Though we may joke otherwise, and here's where Shark's going to line me up against the wall, conservatives yeah. and right-wingers are still human beings. Mm. <laughs> 60-40. <laughs> it is the desire to uh, create art. Uh, is this desire to create art not a universal input? impulse you would think so indeed you would think that for all their braying about the marketplace right-wing musicians writers and directors would be able to infiltrate popular media as expertly as they claim the left has been able to do and yet it does not appear that they have done so with the exception of work created people uh created by people like turfs reprehensible in their own right or michael bay may his name be a curse we do not have a sustained presence of well-made art by conservatives and we've just already seen this. Uh, there was a an attempt to make a an anti woke superhero movie uh, that collapsed because the funding got stolen by the crypto funded bank that it was being held in. Oh yeah, what movie was that? I it was like Rebel Rouser or something like that. Rebel Writer. I don't know. It was so stupid. Huh. Um, an anti woke superhero movie. Uh -huh. <laughs> The shot of the like the dude in the full USA costume with the American flag shield wasn't right wing enough for you fucking weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, fucking um, what's his name, Iron Man, who is basically just a, a, an advertisement for Raytheon. Yeah, <laughs> just not enough. Nope. No, no, you gotta have anti woke. But before we really get into that, I want to make a final comment about Springsteen. I'm not going to review the last album he came out with because I, I don't really care enough. Uh, I'm sure it's fine, but I have, you know, my two genres of black metal and post 1800s classical to, to, to listen to. Now, I want to talk about a commercial he appeared in during the Super Bowl. This commercial was a commercial for Jeeps. It features Springsteen solemnly monologuing about how Americans are all deeply divided and we need to find common ground. Broadly speaking, sure, that's true. Something it's hard to argue with from an electoral perspective. What the catch is, is that this, advent, this ad is centered around a chapel, supposedly positioned directly in the center of the continental United States. This is a metal metaphor for this middle ground, promised by the Biden campaign, moderate conservatives, and the ever-elusive undecided voter. In the context of Americans' troubled political history with evangelical voters, Positioning an overtly Christian symbol as the great middle ground is, you know, worrying. It is concerning because, hey, that's the Republicans' whole talking points. It represents yet another shift toward the center-right when we de desperately need to uh, address issues like climate change, 
houselessness, food insecurity, and the insecurity of income and purpose that is gnawing away at the country more than having fights with your uncle on Facebook because he's discovered QAnon. For most people in the Zoomer and millennial demographics, and for many wonkier types who make it their careers to analyze politics, it's becoming clearer that a shift toward left-wing policies like UBI and the Great New, the Green New Deal are the best lifeline humanity has. Positioning symbols of the old world, uh, churches, trucks, ranchers, intoning about the need to come to a middle ground, uh, positioning all of this as the saving grace of American society, not going to do much to save us. It makes for a good campaign platform to not alienate a, a, alienate a chunk of the country, but it won't save us. So, Bruce, why? It's my open question to Bruce Springsteen, who is a fellow podcaster. Bruce, like, uh, like the rest of us, you are bound to the solemn vow of podcasters. Make listening to podcasts your life so that one day you may guest star on another show or get a coveted spot on the Max Fun Network. So, Bruce, why did you choose this commercial? Did you not think about Christian de not, de, uh, dominionism? Did you just need to repair your house or something? I, I want to know. Rachel, have your parents said that Bruce needs to repair his house? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of. All right. Well, Bruce, let me know. And while we're waiting on an answer from Bruce, let's talk. Why, why, do, you, why do you think that we don't see conservative art? What makes it hard to pull off? That's a, I mean, that's a good question because there's a lot of things that you can draw on. Number one being Christian, like Christianity or, you know, other religion. Um, and I, the way that they're trying to like conservatives or like right-wingers using this type of music, it's like, okay, you're clearly trying to win the support of the working class or like trying to relate with them in some way. So why couldn't any conservative or like right wing artist use those topics in their songs or in their artwork or et cetera? You know, it's just as accessible, just as easy as other people who are currently doing it that are left leaning. So it's a really good question. Shark, you got anything? Yeah, I think you made a critical no creative mistake. Juices. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. They have no creative <laughs> juices. I made a critical mistake in saying that they're people just like any others. Um, <laughs> <laughs> i said they're human beings okay that's fair um i guess technically they clear that bar scientifically um, speaking yes. yeah um but like conservatism is based on being cool 50 years ago <laughs> that's yeah. like the whole idea yeah Everything was great 50 years ago, and we need to keep it that way. Yeah, regardless of where you are in history, conservatives want everything to be like it was 50 years ago. And I mean, like, but you can play on that nostalgia, right? Like, why can't you... Sorry, keep going. Because then you make, like, Greece, which is, like, fine. <laughs> <laughs> or Rockabilly. Yeah. Which is not fine. No. Or, like, Stranger Things, which is also fine. <laughs> yeah. I, the, Stranger Things is a show where I know I've seen, well, I didn't see the last season, I know that, but like I know I've seen the first three, but I don't remember anything distinctive about the second and third. They just fell. Because yeah. so they're I, fine. I guess fine. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. Like, nostalgia just isn't good art. That's fair. Good art is sad, lonely people. <laughs> 
trying to make someone talk to them. Okay, but to be fair, I didn't say it had to be good. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I I did not say that it had to be good. Buy all the Kid Rock albums you want, America. Oh my god. (laughs) Slang more D. Dude, listening, <laughs> listening to you and I read Chris Rock lyrics <laughs> as I was editing the last episode was a, a harsh look in the mirror that must have contributed to my current downward slide. <laughs> was it that, and then the uh, the the Star Wars discussion of the lost episode? That, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Expose Shark to Star Wars and get him get get Shark to become a frittata. Yep. See, Star Wars, another great thing that a fundamentally conservative person made, I suppose. I don't I don't I don't think Lucas is conservative. I think he he's he's like Springsteen. He's like a Is he? Yeah. George Lucas is just incoherent. Yeah, he's That's just like incoherent. A, yeah. Like he he does he did, I'm sure he still does to some extent, but like he did a, for a long time like do a lot of uh work to try and make it easier for black filmmaking students to get like a leg in the door in school industry and seems to really care about that stuff which again makes it even more concerning about all of his weird choices in the prequels (laughs) about like the asian aliens that control all of the trade watto the 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 coded jewish slaver and junk trader (laughs) weird weird dude george lucas yep yeah, like they just just nostalgia doesn't. It's like not good art. Like it's just days of our lives or some fucking bullshit like that. It's just bad. Yeah, like and I th- there's like a you can spin on nostalgia in the way that like David Lynch does, where yeah. a lot of his movies are about like suburban America and how just below the the surface is a strong foundation of rot. Yeah. <laughs> and horror yeah and uh yeah it's it, it i don't know i think about it a lot because like there was i mean there's atlas shrugged horrible book horrible book, and they keep making like adaptations of it and uh and none of it? those adaptations truly capture how fucking horny yeah. any of those books are god they like my uh it was <laughs> like i uh, want a properly aroused oh atlas we got a good face movie. rub <laughs> well, <laughs> imagine Anne Rand fucking Aaron. <laughs> uh, well, so I, I read that when I was still living in Nashville, and I there was a scene in in Atlas Shrugged where she has it, it's got to be one of like the the critics who slammed her books or something on a train, and he's described as this just almost like a Woody Allen like character who's just despicable. And she goes on for like a page and a half about how this guy sucks. And then the the tunnel collapses on the train. And she specifies that his car was crushed. <laughs> it, it's like how Dante in uh, The Inferno wrote a lot about like his personal enemies being tortured in hell for all eternity. <laughs> if Anne Rand were a better writer and her ideas were more acceptable in the free market, she wouldn't have had to be on welfare. Yeah. Yeah. Just what Anne Rand would have said about Anne Rand. Yeah. So we're all kind of in a weird space right now, I can tell. So let's leave this on an up note. Like, what's what do you recommend for people to check out that's not Atlas Shrugged? <laughs> Rachel's well, that fell for that. Rachel, Joy? 
What do I like? <laughs> Rachel shaking her head, going, "This isn't how we end podcasts." Yeah, no. we end it with an ex- <laughs> with us all accepting our eternal doom. <laughs> all right, well, watch that's... the league. Watch the league of their own TV show that's on Amazon. That right good? Now. It's it's pretty fucking good. Okay. Also. I, I... Once you watch the show and realize that it's really good, then read the reviews because those are all fucking hilarious. Okay. The show is a league of their own about a women's baseball league. Um, yep. Oh, okay. It's tangentially about a women's baseball league in the TV show. It's actually about being a lesbian in the TV show because it's got like a real thing that isn't just baseball to talk about. And it talks about being queer. There's a trans character. There's a bunch of gay characters. It talks about being queer in the 40s a lot. And it's really cool that way. And once you watch the show, and you're like, wow, this is really well written. This is really well acted. The directing's pretty good. Then you can log on and read the reviews of people being like, lesbians in a woman's baseball league? Why are they ruining the content? <laughs> <laughs> those people are also great. So you put both those things together. It's a really good time. Nice. It's a great show, though. Watch it. It's very good. Takes a little nice. while to file oh. the heat up. But... Okay. I, I okay. So we have like definitive, definitively concluded that there is no right wing. Uh, I, I think that's what we're, we're going with. I don't. I mean, you. I guess like Kiss is kind. Well, no, because they're not like political. They're, that's just yeah. Gene Simmons being an asshole. Uh, I don't know if the other members of Kiss feel that way. I yeah. mean, there's like some. I think they like just Wagner, like I guess, is a good artist. No. <laughs> he's not. You, you legally can't say that, Aaron. You're Jewish. He's... You can't say that he's a good artist. <laughs> it's very boring. He is yeah. very boring with the aside with the ac- the exception of when he writes drinking songs into his musicals. Or not musicals, operas. Though then those <laughs> are fun. Not okay. proven. There we go. No, this is great. This is I that's how I'm gonna troll my like classic people at the symphony when I go. I'll be like, I was listening to a Wagner music. <laughs> that'll be cool. yeah i mean i guess the cia did create all of modern american fiction so <laughs> but that all sucks uh, yeah the the whole iowa writers workshop is a cia yeah yeah in case you don't i don't know if i've given you this rant rachel it's my favorite of all of the conspiratorial cia rants i have locked and loaded anytime <laughs> uh, so there's a um like Lex Luthor Ice Cave secret base of American <laughs> literature, known as the Iowa, Iowa Writers Workshop. Every book you read by an American author that got really famous and is well written, if you flip to the back cover, you'll say this person attended the Iowa Writers Workshop, with pretty much no exceptions. There's a lot of like a, a very, very big chunk of American literary fiction came out of like this school of writing yeah, which okay. has it's infected the entire world yeah. its influence cannot be understated yeah. in like literary fiction like new yeah. york times bestsellers are like all written in this style pretty much yeah vonnegut taught there for a bit yeah despite okay. actually being cool yeah but um the iowa writers workshop was started by the cia god damn yeah there was a good uh if you if you can find that article you you sent to me a while ago, I'll include that in the show notes because that's yeah. a fun read. Yeah. So like all of and it was like to counter the Soviet authors who were like good at writing, 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're like, these people are can write things and they're political and people might read them and get all riled up. So we got to create a genre that fundamentally has nothing to say and is impossible to read and enjoy yourself. It's uh, I, I argue that it's an extension of a lot of British literary That's fiction. That's uh, fair. Jane Austen. How fucking <laughs> dare you? Don't like Jane Austen. <laughs> Against the wall. <laughs> We're going to leave that there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jane Austen is an incredible writer. The just not my greatest thing. writer the English language has ever produced. I'm right gonna disagree. The greatest author that the English language has produced is, of course, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aaron Carruthers Simon. Yeah. What is your middle name? I'm not telling you. <laughs> it's a fun bit. To I was just wondering. I'm like, is that true? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I was gonna keep this going. This is yeah, the same bit forever. Yeah. I bet it's something lame like Charles. You cuck. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's actually cock. It's <laughs> Aaron Cuckold Simon. Yeah. <laughs> Family's a really big fan of Shakespearean insults, and they figured they just really undermine me from an early age. <laughs> yeah, every time I read any any play, I'm like, oh, he's talking about me. No, that's an insult. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye.